Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome again to the Dabblers Book Club with me, Hadja Woodland, bringing you another guest special. In this episode, I speak to the author, solicitor and human rights activist, Torsif Khan. Torsif's book, The Muslim Problem, Why We're Wrong About Islam and Why It Matters, is out this week and takes a magnifying glass to both the internal experience of growing up Muslim and the skewed treatment of and representation of Muslims in the Western media. And yes, I categorically believe it's skewed and that we all need to try a little bit harder to question our own biases and challenge injustice where we see it, exhausting as that may be. This book especially piqued my interest as I've struggled with faith and faith identity for years, feeling Islamophobia keenly as a child and as a teenager, forcing myself to see Muslim identity as a binary that rested on symbols such as hijab, alcohol and pork. Torsif's book was not only an eye-opening exploration of how we treat Muslims in this country, hiding behind the religion isn't a race argument, but it also gave me pause to reflect on what Islam now means to me and if there might yet be a way to sow the pieces of my long-lost Islamic spirituality into the canvas of my Western life and personal values. Torsif joined me on the Dabblers Book Club to speak about two of his favourite authors, planning holidays around reading, and his brilliant book, The Muslim Problem. This was a really illuminating and energising conversation, so pop the kettle on, maybe start on that jigsaw puzzle, and enjoy. Hi Torsif, how are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's wonderful to have you on. I can't wait to speak more about your book, but first, let's stick to fiction. Uh, and now, as always, I swear I'm the worst read person to have a book podcast, uh, but I haven't read these novels. Um, you've told me you love the Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferrante and Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout. Hugely successful novels. I, I should read an Elena Ferrante, but still not. You really should. It. I really should. How many of you read? Are you, <laughs> you a massive fan? I read all of them um, and I read them in a weird way in that I sort of rationed myself. So I read one a year because I know I had heard so much stuff about how great they were. Um, I used to be part of this Guardian thing where people wrote about the things that they were reading every week and people would just go on and on and on about Ferrante. So I knew that it was going to be fantastic. I read the first one. I was like, oh, this is amazing. But I can't read this all in one go because it's like I need to be in this world for as long as possible. So I read one a year and then my goal was to read the fourth one in Italy last this time last year. And then obviously shit happened. Um, so I had to read it at home. That's so nice, like setting up an actual place to go for when you read a book. That's, that's. I mean, um, on our podcast, so Curtis is a, a big storyteller and every book he reads, he will have a story for exactly where he was and, and the feelings around him and everything. Uh, whereas I can't even remember what books were about. So I'm uh, not quite as <laughs> romantic in my language around books. So you've read those four. Have you read any other, uh, Ferrante? Are you like a massive fan of her? Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely a big fan of her. Um, I've read maybe three or four of the 
earlier books like like the lost daughter and and, and a few others which are really great and, and there's one that's meant to be like the precursor like she's just discussing similar themes um which is also really fantastic i think i read two of those on, on a holiday just because they're really easy to read uh, and i find her pro style really compelling but i haven't read the new one because I wanted to, well, I just read one for Ante last year, so I wanted to wait, and I'm hoping for the paperback because the hardback is really bulky. I love that people have rituals around their reading. Honestly, I I think I treat my life like a dustbin, to be honest, when it comes to, to books and things. There's no value. <laughs> I'm really weird about books, though. I like, um, especially because for me, books are a really great way of like traveling and trying to understand different places. So I've always used... Um, especially now that I've started to travel before all this stuff was happening, um, I would use books as a way to try and understand a place that I was traveling to. So for example, I've got like quite a few, I've read a, a bit of Japanese literature and I, and I really like to read books about Japan, but there, there are a few that I've kept specifically for when I go. So there are like two books that I've had for about three or four years by Osamu Desai that I've been keeping for ages. And I'm just like, yep, yeah, I'm gonna. This is the stuff I'm gonna read when I go. Um, the list you gave me: is Elena Ferrante and the Neapolitan novels, and Elizabeth Strout's Olive Kitteridge. So very female-led, female-written. Obviously, it's a what network narrative-y sort of short story collection. Yeah, it's a novel in stories. That one. Um, but I'm definitely interested in reading women, um, women writers. I think that that women tend to make better writers, in my <laughs> opinion, um, just because. By like just by the generalization, women tend to be more empathetic yeah. and you know tend to be more interested in, in in trying to understand humanity. And at least those are the kind of women writers that I'm interested in, right? So like with Ferrante, it is really about the complexity, the ugly complexity of friendships, whilst also doing all of the stuff about politics and the changing face of Italy and class and poverty and all of that sort of stuff. And I think that with Elizabeth Strout as well, on, on the surface it might seem like, oh, this is really female literature but she's doing really risk-taking interesting stuff by taking a character who for many seems super unlikable but she i find olive couture is like really compelling really interesting uh, really lovable and, and endearing in a way even though she's so abrasive and maybe i relate to that perhaps because i'm a little bit abrasive as well um but i but i really i just find her a really interesting character and i, I read the sequel last year and i think it's even better um, than the first one it's just really intelligently written but there's the like the, the prose is quite deceptively simple but there's really like co complex things happening beneath the surface is it quite plot led or is it quite character driven and it's just sort of around her yeah i think they're definitely character led i mean the things happen but they're very much about about her and it's all, it's all really interesting because I think the first one, there are interesting plot things, right? She has an interesting tension with her husband um, and her son, especially with her past that like creeps in, but we don't really learn a huge amount about. But we know that somehow there's damage and, and psychological trauma in Olive's life that is somehow being imbued into the way that she raised her son. But then because it's set in a really small town, it's also really about the people that live in this town and the particularity of this kind of like small town um, East Coast America type of living. And there's a particular way of speaking that they have. Olive has a, a really weird way of expressing herself. She uses Godfrey a lot, for example, which I've like never heard anybody say ever. What do you mean? Instead of God? Like, like, oh my God, like Godfrey, oh, golly right. Godfrey, that kind of thing. It's, yeah, it's, it's just, 
interesting to me. I really um, like it. Have you been to Maine as well? Then, because that's set in Maine, isn't it? If you you haven't lined that up, but it's on my. I'd like to. <laughs> the East Coast would be really cool, though. Like eat crabs and all the kind of shellfish things, stuff that they do there, and, and chowder and all of that. There's a whole culture. I want to take you back. It's what you're saying about female writers, actually, and the empathy you find in in their writing. And I do wonder if it's a sort of culture of celebrating hypermasculine kind of writing styles. Yeah, like we we assume that male writing is all about big ideas and concepts and and, and stuff like that. Um, whereas female writing is the is the space for emotions. But the emotions are where where I'm most interested and in, where I feel most moved when I'm reading stuff. Um, especially because I'm interested in people more than concepts. Um, and I would say that it, it isn't a case that only female writers do that. Like, I think one of my favorite writers is Com Toybean, and he does that amazingly well. Um, I think I probably read more of his work than probably any other author, but there is a, an attention to to the emotions um, and to small things in people's lives that I really like. Like even the micro is is amplified and given kind of like the attention and dignity that it deserves. What do you think you get out of that? Is that um, re-examining your own life through what you read? Is that, or is it just an interest and an observation level, do you think? I think it, well, I think reading does multiple things. Reading fiction especially does, does multiple things. In, even though we are told to be careful about seeing fiction as only this way to build empathy, and I agree that we shouldn't treat fiction as a thing. I'm going to read books and it's going to make me really empathetic. <laughs> um, but I think that I enjoy identifying with other people's lives and learning about them and finding some point of connection. Like for me, the thing that I always come back to with Elena Ferrante's work in the with the Neapolitan novels is that friendship is really complicated and is often very ugly and and it's a place of very ugly emotions but we don't uh, have a lot of space to think and feel and discuss that I think especially in western society we think about the primary relationships in our lives as being like your partner your husband or your wife or your partner and that's the relationship whereas for me like yes that's that's true but i would say that the most pivotal important enriching relationships i have are, are with my friends but they're also the most difficult ones as well and i really relate to that aspect of her writing the way that she really unpicks that the the tension in the people that that we love and we learn so much from but happen to resent and feel jealous about and, and hurt and harm. All that stuff is really interesting. But I also think that Elena Ferrante talks about class really, really well. Uh, in a, and in a way that I really recognize as being true to my own experiences. And I think that seeing that is a kind of validation as well. So what are your experiences with class? Um, well, I, I would say that, you know, I was born into a working class family, but I have transitioned class to some extent because my background is that I'm a solicitor and I have a PhD and and to be able to write a book is a huge marker of class privilege um, and yet at the same time I would say that being a brown person and being a working class brown person or coming from a working class brown family means that you're marked by class in other ways um, and the thing that I find interesting about all of this stuff and my experience is that as I have seen like my life change, I have seen the people around me, um, their experiences and, and, and their kind of res response to me be change. And so Elena Ferrante talks about how like, the, you know, when you when you kind of move beyond the experiences that your, your community 
has um, and when you move beyond your sort of initial community and environment um, there comes a resentment because you are making choices that seem to invalidate theirs consciously or unconsciously but then at the same time there is a huge amount of pride that they have for for the fact that you've been able to do the things that you do and I find that really interesting because that's my experience I feel like um in my community, I've experienced a lot of resentment and confusion about the choices that I make, but also a huge amount of pride that I've made them. But I also think that with class, there's there's also a feeling for me that you can never really escape the class that you're born into. So I understand the criticism that people get for claiming to be working class when maybe they're not. But in my experience, I live a very middle class life, but in the circles that I um, find myself in, I often do feel marked as a working class person because I don't share those references or I don't share the intimacy with the way that they live their lives because I think that um, my up upbringing or my experiences of like broader culture have um, dictated a certain set of experiences that are very different to people who are middle class and born into middle class families and, and so on. I mean, even um, Professor Green, Pro Green, the rapper, he was talking on Times Radio about always feeling working class. No, no matter how much success he has, he is always worried that it'll go away any minute. And I think that might be quite a working class slash low income uh, mindset is that that need for a plan B. And well, for me, it's a plan C and a plan D. <laughs> you know, there's always this, um, you know, where the rungs on the ladder are beneath you, basically. Yeah, for sure. Did those books have a real significant impact on your life or was it more just a book that you really enjoyed? Did they change anything in your life? Um, maybe the Ferrante books have had a, a significant effect in the way that I understand who I am, where I come from and where I'm going. And they gave me seeing seeing my experiences represented in the books and the, the kind of complicated tension between where I come from and where I'm going, um, seeing the, that on the page that definitely encouraged me to keep doing what I'm doing, but also find a way to hold on to the, the communities that you're like moving in and the community that you come from. Mm -hmm. That's always been a big, big part of my life. But I think that it made it seem even more important that you can never really, you can never escape where you come from. But also, I've always believed that there is never like harmony in your life if you try to run away from your past or run away from the communities that you've come from, um, which is uh, interesting because I'm reading a book by Didier Eribon, Returning to Rhymes or Reams. Mm -hmm. And he, he talks about like coming out of the class closet, which I find really fascinating. And and him coming out of the class closet is a way to kind of um, like come to terms with where he comes from and stop trying to hide from his working class origins. Um, and I think that's important. So I think that the Ferrante stuff really enriched my life because I felt that it was, I felt that it taught me a lot about the complexity uh, of friendships and how even when they're difficult, they're worth staying with. Um, and, and when they don't work, it's also okay to just mm -hmm. sort of let them be like people move through your life um, and, and with a purpose. And, and you can also just let that be what it is. But it encouraged me to also continue to envisage a life for myself that um, that really has like creativity and thinking at its core. And so because I have this book coming out, I was thinking about that a lot um, because one of the main characters, she 
ends up becoming like a public intellectual and she writes books and she teaches a little bit. And that for me was really interesting to see somebody come from very, very working class circumstances and then have a life like that. Mm -hmm. um, I think perseverance is an interesting thing and learning perseverance, actually. So we spoke to Hashim Muhammad a few weeks ago about his um, his book that's, you know, uh, people like us all about social mobility um, in this country. And I was thinking about, yeah, the idea of perseverance being something that I don't really think I was ever taught. And I don't know if that's a class thing or it has some sort of class lens to it. Have you had it? Is it always been ingrained that if you work hard at something, it will come? I mean, you're a solicitor, yes. so you must. <laughs> yeah. My parents, well, my dad is also um, a lawyer. So I was always taught about perseverance, about hard work and about education above anything. I, th I think my parents unlike maybe the rest of my broader family really believed in the power of education and i think that that was the thing and i was i mean i was really lucky in so many ways that they gave me access to opportunities that maybe my other family members didn't have but i think that when you see when you see your parents working as hard as they do it it does teach you a lot about about perseverance and about how to put your setbacks into perspective. Mm. So I would say that, for example, you know, my dad is a lawyer, but he started working from our house at first. So when I was three or four years old, um, he set up his like little business, immigration business in our front room, in our little council house. And so anytime somebody came to see him, we'd have to go upstairs and wait until he was done and then we would be able to come down. So I've seen his business move transition from there to where we are now and and that's a process of expansion and being busy busier uh thankfully and i've seen how that has tra translated in us having um being able to live a different life a more comfortable life um and i've also seen that like like not to get too much into politics, but being an immigration solicitor or lawyer is really, really difficult, especially in a country like this under a lot of setbacks. And it's a very politicized uh, job to be doing. There are people always looking to undercut you in in kind of like broader society or your clients themselves can often take out their frustrations on you for issues that are systemic and institutional then, then down to the stuff that, you know, whether you've been doing a good job or not. And so that has always taught me about, about perseverance. Um, well, speaking about your parents, so you're, you start your book, let's talk about the Muslim problem now. The Muslim problem, why we're wrong about Islam and why it matters. You start off 14 years old deciding to be pagan. How did that work out for you? Not very well, because I'm, I'm definitely still Muslim. And I think I was still Muslim at the time. I think the, the big contradiction of that, I mean, it's, it's a funny place to begin, but it's something I really remember quite quite viscerally um deciding and i had a i had like a pagan friend i think um in this yes it was it was really much it was the time where you know you had purple hair and you like you know uh, were a pagan and were interested in that sort of stuff um yeah and i was already a little bit interested in the occult because i'm really superstitious and so it just made sense to me because i was like so angry at the time about things that were happening that I was like yeah you know like fuck everything I'm a pagan. I'm going to try and like think about my connection with nature rather than like connection with God and, and prayers and things like that. I'm just gonna just gonna go out into the world and try and feel something. Um, but the reality of that was that I 
I kind of did lots of Muslim stuff anyway. You can't you can't live in a Muslim family, a fairly traditional Muslim family, and not do the things that make you Muslim. So you know, I would still fast if I was forced to. I'd still pray. Um, I think over those years, I still went to Saudi Arabia on pilgrimage um, at least twice, maybe um, before I was before I was like nineteen. Um, so I was doing all the things that were Muslim, but I was somehow trying to rebel. Um, and in my in my own podcast, we talk about in the first episode about rebellion and protest. And for me, like saying I was a pagan is about was about rebelling against God and saying like I'm really pissed off with you. I'm really angry about the situation that I'm in. And the only way that I can show you is by like telling you I'm not a Muslim now. You know, like that's the, that's the power that I have. I can decide at least that. And so I did. When you were 14, sorry, I forgot from the book, was that before 9-11 or after? I think that it must have been after, but I'm not, I'm not too sure. I can't, I can't t- remember how the two events overlap. In a way, I kind of think it doesn't matter. That's what I was thinking to myself, that in a way, 9-11 accelerated something that I was already thinking, which was this, this frustration with religion being uh, quite rigid and quite dogmatic and being based around doing and not thinking. Um, and there's a there's a bit in the book that we actually cut out where I talk about like, being eight years old and having these thoughts. I remember there's, there's a story that I, that I cut. Um, I was eight years old, it was Ramadan. My... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My cousins had come around to break the fast with me. Um, I'm not even sure if we were fasting, but but we were going to do it iftar together. Uh, the three of us prayed. We're praying together, my mom, him, and I. And the phone rang and I'd witnessed my mom kind of like in the past when she was praying and the phone rang, like sort of turn to look at her shoulders and then go and get the phone. So I did the same thing, picked up the phone, had a chat uh, with whoever it was. And then when my mom finished, I gave it to her. Um, she spoke and then she told me off. You, you weren't supposed to finish. You have to finish when I finish. And so I, I was really embarrassed because I thought, oh, this is really horrible. She's She's telling me off in front of my cousin, but I thought I was doing the right thing. And so that all of that stuff really then raised these questions of like, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And and is this okay? And what is like the actual substance behind the prayers uh, that we're supposed to be reciting? Because yeah, I'm not ha- I'm not happy with being told what to do and then being told off for doing it wrong. I went the other way when I was 14. I went for jilbab and headscarf and sort of hyper, hyper, yeah, hyper Muslim. Uh, yeah, just finding myself needing to do it right. And if I couldn't do it right, then I was just frustrated by the whole thing. And then it's, it's mm. either all or nothing. And I don't know where it comes from. Well, I would say that um, in the book, I interviewed Hussein Kisvani, who wrote Follow Miyaki, and he also talks about doubling down on religion when he was having a time, hard time with it. So I went the other way, which was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing this, um, despite doing it. But he became also quite um, like super hyper observant uh, with this arm because he felt that that's what he had to do. Um, 
which I think is interesting that we had two different reactions. But then I also have a friend, maybe it's because he's a, uh, quite a few years older than me, where he has had no conflicts with religion at all, ever. Um, and he is, he identifies as queer and he's had no conflicts with, uh, with his sexuality and his religion. Um, and even like when he was in his late teens, early twenties, he was out traveling across Pakistan, um, with Tabliki Jamaat, which is a group, um, that proselytize quite a bit. So they go around and give sermons and lectures and encourage people to, to sort of convert. Um, and he would, he would go off with them on these tours around Pakistan, giving speeches and, and stuff. And we have no issue with with anything. How did you go about reconciling your your faith with, not Britain or anything like that, but your faith with how you felt on the inside? How do you reconcile those two things? Because for me, that's the, the most fascinating. I think that it took a really long time and it was kind of a really protracted and painful process. Like I thought that I would, um, I remember in my like late teens and early twenties, I thought that I'd be making progress and I would still feel super uncomfortable. And I think that especially in, in my early twenties, it felt like we were living in a time when the media only spoke about terrorist attacks that were taking place across the world. And I, you know, I understand why that was a time when the situation in Iraq and Afghanistan were, were at their worst. So there were so many, and also in Pakistan as well. So there were so many terror attacks taking place on a daily, weekly basis that were always being reported. And it felt like in Europe as well, Europe and, and in America, there were so many more threats um, that were, were that were taking place that I felt kind of all, um, almost like it felt quite a claustrophobic time to always be uh, confronted with this idea of Islam or this incarnation of Islam and what that meant for all of us. So I, I talk about in the book about like every time I saw something like that, I felt really angry and I felt really resentful of being Muslim and I felt really resentful of other Muslims and I felt resentful of a tradition that could enable this sort of stuff to happen. But I think that slowly it got there and I think that it's kind of a piecemeal process I think ultimately it's about, and, and that's why I kind of at the end of the book, I talk about like the 10 sort of like piece of advice that I would give to anybody trying to figure out what to do um, if they feel conflicted in Islam or if they want to build an authentic relationship with Islam. I think that definitely you have to make decisions about what it is that you believe in and what Islam is about to you. To me, Islam is about social justice. It's about having an ethical framework for the way that I move through the world. And so anything in Islam or any interpretation in Islam that appears unethical, that can hurt somebody, that can cause harm, is not part of my tradition. It's not a part of Islam that I can follow. And so that has always been my lens since then to any piece of like, you can do this, you can't do this. This is what Islam says. That's always been my response that is this, is this like ethical? Is it just, is it harming somebody? If, if, if it's harming somebody, then it can definitely not be a part of Islam. If it's ethical and just, then it's about deepening our relationships with each other or deepening our connection to each other and, and the world and deepening our connection to God, then I'm into it. And so that was part of it. I think another part of it was being able to like reclaim Muslim history and being able to understand what happened. I feel like we're all, as Muslims, like products of geopolitical forces and we don't know it until somehow like a light bulb goes off and you're like, oh, okay, so all this shit that's happening around the world is is actually like, this is the thing that's defining my experience, right? It's not just like the, the 
communities we grow up in or our families. It's also the things that we read in the newspapers and see on TV. It's also about the things that our politicians are talking about and they can't stop talking about us. So I think that like understanding what's going on beneath the surface there was really important. Um, and finding positive things to cling on to. So yes, in the scripture, yes, in the text, uh, in the Hadith, there were like really beautiful things. There were really ethical things that I can hold on to. And I found my, an ethical framework in that. But I also find beauty and inspiration in the Islamic past and seeing what Muslim societies have been able to achieve intellectually, creatively, scientifically, and so on. All of that gave me a model to believe in an Islam that isn't what society mainstream society tells us islam is right they tell us that islam is backward it's regressive it can't be compatible with modernity it's you know it's homophobic it's misogynist and so on and then i see all these examples in history and i'm like okay i mean i find myself making these stereotypes as well because of my upbringing and because of my very narrow um experience of muslims and islam i think a lot of people will read it just to yeah, remind themselves that it is the world shaping our vision. And it's our communities that let us down as well, right? Because I think that there's a whole tradition on many issues, on many of the stereotypes that I cover that I had no idea about. Um, to use misogyny as an example, I think that I knew nothing about like female spiritual leadership and the history of that on that question how many imams are there in this country do you, I do don't you know, know. The, you can't I don't ask know. that question <laughs> why are you asking me that question <laughs> <laughs> sorry carry on i just had to take the opportunity we had to we had to um <laughs> but i think the misogyny one is a really interesting one because yeah i knew nothing about the history and tradition of female spiritual leadership until i started entertaining those questions until i started thinking about it and until i met muslim feminists who did a lot of work to expose me to the tradition the scholarship that exists so i've been really lucky in that respect that i've that i've been able to meet scholars and and activists and thinkers who are thinking about these sorts of issues and what they've shown me is that this stuff is not new talking about the idea of like the right of a woman to to lead prayer it's not new it's like it's you know it's been done for 1400 years the right of a woman to be a scholar and and to lead and shape our understanding of islam that is not new there are like you know hundreds of hadith scholars who were women who were teaching in in muslim history so so there are so many examples of that or even for example to understand like the woman's space a woman's space in the mosque and you know i've definitely grown up with this idea that well a woman doesn't need to go to mosque you know or she shouldn't go to mosque because she's got too much stuff on you know but but that <laughs> stuff actually isn't true because when you start looking at okay well when when were women marginalized from religious spaces that happened like in the generations almost immediately after the the prophet's death and it was a point of contention even in his lifetime where the community was was kind of arguing about whether women should or shouldn't be entitled to to go and do their prayers in the mosque if they wanted to right so so all of that stuff has been stuff that we've di we've discussed for years and years and years for hundreds of years so and, and there's a wealth of scholarship that gives us access to those conversations and yet we don't know about it we think that we accept uncritically that a woman shouldn't be going to the mosque a woman who is on her period if she has periods shouldn't you know must not pray must not go to the mosque because that is a sin these things are not sins right there it's a, it's a totally different way of understanding this if you want to so so that stuff is like 
it blows your mind when you start thinking about these things and it really forces me it forced me to uncheck a lot of prejudices that i had and actually not only like an internalization of misogyny but maybe it helped me uncheck my own misogyny as well and i think that's important i think a problem with um with any sort of religion when you want to either connect with it or reconnect with it is that what a lot of people are after with religion is community they're not necessarily always after the spirituality and it's that community that can then be so exclusive and and oppressive about how to be part of it i think patriarchy for me anyway generally is is a is the problem because <laughs> uh, any religion is the easiest father replacement it's the easiest way to control children it's the easiest way to control women everything it's just um and actually it was this um this convert friend i, I knew in my teens that uh she was the one saying to me well it doesn't matter what you think if god says you need to do something well god's not telling me that you're telling me that's what, what this yeah. means it's a minefield for me where the lines of sort of community responsibility end and where it's just a just a general society needs to you know keep improving everything always feels quite bleak when it comes to um, both from, from both sides literally from western society and how um, they speak about muslims in in british media um, to muslim communities um, and how we not modernize i don't like that word but realize that islam was a starting point it was never meant to be the end point it was a for me anyway i think it was, it was an approach to thinking we wouldn't have made all the advances in the islamic world do you have a clear picture on what the Muslim community or Muslim communities is like in this country? I have no idea. It's so distorted. Definitely not, because it's hard for me to like say what the British Muslim community is because there are so many. The only one that I can speak of is like the, the community that I was born in. And that one is, you know, a very working class community that has issues with you know marginalization in terms of like access to the labor market access to you know like the issues with food poverty i have a friend who is a high school um teacher head teacher at a school the school that i went to and they have you know lots of issues with with like children going hungry so those issues are there and those issues often prior take priority over dealing with religious issues. And I think that that does piss people off because I gave an interview um, recently about like the culture question. And when I talked about like the various other issues that Muslim communities are dealing with, I was told that I was like making excuses, but I'm not, I'm just saying that these things are also very real challenges that Muslims have to deal with. We have to deal with Islamophobia, we have to deal with putting food on the table. We have to deal with trying to get and maintain jobs in you know a very competitive job market where there is a lot of proven uh, racial and religious discrimination so then the issues of dealing with your own religious shit and trauma is quite difficult to do and it, we need to do it and i think that it's happening but it's difficult to do and i think that's, that's part of the humanization thing is that most people in this country, very single background, literally just want to make a living and have a family and have a home and a community. Like there's these constant questions. I think there's a French headline the other day about um, how to make Muslims integrate more. It's like, why are you assuming they already don't integrate? And I think that, you know, communities are also really complicated because I am part of online communities and a part of activist communities. And the way that we live our lives are also really different. And I would say that in those in those spaces that I am a part of, people are really actually addressing the question of what it means to be Muslim 
for them and they're doing it on an individual basis they're also then disseminating that work and doing that thinking on a community basis and it's really exciting to be a part of it's exciting to see for example queer muslims become empowered with their religion it's exciting to see uh, Muslim women who are speaking up about their experiences and also not feeling defined by the stereotypes that we have about what Muslim women are and should be. You know, there are so many examples of this where even like my like what the conceptions that we have of Muslim men, I am part of communities where men are doing really interesting intellectual, emotional thinking about their a role in society, in their families and in their communities. And that's all happening when people tell us that we're not doing it. And I think that's, do you think possibly that's an advantage of living in the country that we live in, in that Absolutely. you can actually have big conversations? And I think it's drawing more people out the woodwork. For me, I went through a phase, and I think like like your friend on, on Muslim Actually podcast, he was talking about, yeah, feeling that he had to be one or the other, feeling that, okay, well, I'm not this definition of a Muslim, so I have to not be a Muslim, I suppose, and then finding, reconciling yourself with that. And it is quite an exciting time. I think there are a lot of people, possibly my age, who've gone through, yeah, their 20s, being, oh, I'm probably not, or thinking that the label ex-Muslim works, because you have to still define yourself by some very Western idea of, you know, religion or non-religion. And um, and yeah, more conversations uh, are happening. I mean, grateful is not the right word, but I feel lucky and privileged to live in a rich and stable country that enables me to have these conversations and to do the thinking that I'm doing. And I am very aware, and I think that many other Muslims are aware, that if we were to live in Muslim countries, we might not have the same freedom and ability to do the work that we're doing. I think that's really important. It's, it's really important to say that because a lot of Muslims living in the West can idealize the, the Muslim societies that they see and think that they are somehow closer to the ideals of God and closer to the ideals of Islam. And I don't believe that they are in any um, shape or form. I think it's really important to say. I feel that living in Britain enables me to live and practice a kind of Islam that is closer to what God wants from me than living in a, a so-called Muslim society. I did want to point out, I find it really interesting that you write about how you um, you say Muslims aren't allowed to be angry. And uh, yet the main, <laughs> I know what you're say now. <laughs> the main criticism I've seen is that you're angry. I was like, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, what would you say about, yeah, um, anger? I, I think it's a perfectly natural uh, feeling to have about Islamophobia and the weighted discrimination against Muslims in this country, I think. I think that the book is more complicated than that emotionally, and it runs through emotions far greater and more important than anger. So when some yeah, when somebody chooses to call the book angry, I think that they're relying on an old trope about race in general and about people who seek to achieve any kind of social justice change on race and on other social justice grounds. So we should recognize that we're called angry when we want change and the establishment doesn't want us to give us that change. Um, and it's just too easy to go to that place of this is angry as a way of delegitimizing it. But I think that any review that calls my book angry has failed to engage with 
the balance with which it seeks to represent the conversations that um, I'm interested in. And I also think that anger is a legitimate emotion. I don't believe that it's the only thing that fuels a movement or social change, but I think that we should definitely be angry about injustice. Otherwise, I don't think that I would be a very effective Muslim if injustice didn't move me, you know, to anger. For me, I also take way more interest in the reviews from young Muslims who have been reading the book and really seem to be connecting with it. Um, either it affirms journeys that they're already on, or it seems to give them a language to describe and articulate the kind of Islamophobia they're experiencing. Um, it validates them. And that's kind of what I set out to do. So if one one Muslim person feels that way, then I think I set out, yeah, I, I achieved my goal with the book. Well, it's done that for me. It really has, I think. Um, and I think it, it does work on the two two sides. There's the feeling of yeah, not being alone and being able to understand your religion a bit better and connect with it through your own values and principles and also getting real about what the situation is in this country in terms of how we talk about Muslims. Um, and you're very unapologetic in it. You're, you know, it's Islamophobes. Islam, you know, that's that's the word you use for people who speak about yeah, for sure. Muslims in a, in a certain way. Yeah, because I think when you've experienced this stuff enough for for long enough and enough times, you have to be unapologetic about the thing that you're talking about. Um, and when you're talking about something that is systemic and institutional, you have to be unapologetic about what you're talking about. Um, and I think that because the main way in which Islamophobia is ignored is through this process of invalidation. It's important to be unapologetic about the existence of Islamophobia and the use of that term. And I think real change can only happen when we stop apologising for wanting it. So you're absolutely right. Torsif, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you ever so much. No problem. So, Thanks so for interesting. Me. All right, take care. Take care. If that conversation has left you wanting to know a bit more about Islam and Islamophobia in the UK today, then Tulsi's book, The Muslim Problem, is for you. Also, definitely do check out his podcast, Muslim Actually, where he and other Muslims from a wide range of backgrounds talk candidly about their faith experiences. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.